This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Surprise! If you heard that I was going to be gone this week, you heard correctly. But I decided to do something because I cannot stay away from podcasting for you guys. So what I'm doing is I'm going to give you a bonus episode. And also what this will be is a little taste of what happens if you become a Patreon patron of the show. So every once in a while, usually about once a month or once every six weeks, something like that, I will do a little bonus episode. Sometimes they're a wrap-up episode of the series. So any little tidbits that I didn't get to share with you from the prior series, I will do a bonus episode on Patreon for patrons only, and they will get some more information on some of the stories that I covered. The other thing that I do sometimes is if there is another story that I didn't get to fit into an episode, I will put that on Patreon as well. So if maybe something um, like a follow-up Sometimes it'll be a follow-up of a case. Sometimes it will be just uh, an- another s- story, an offshoot of the case that I covered. But for whatever reason, I didn't add it into the episode. Sometimes it would be because it's the episode has just gone long. And frankly, sometimes I get tired of just writing. Um, and so I just kind of keep those to the side to do a better job of it later. Otherwise, I'll end up rushing through and trying to add that other little story in, and it's kind of rushed, and I don't really like that. As you guys know, I like to be as thorough as possible. So there's times when I feel like I'm rushing the story just to get it done, get it written, and get it out. And so if that's happening, then sometimes I will put that piece of the story aside and then maybe use it as a little bonus for Patreon. So this is one of those cases. So this one is going to cover a story that I didn't get to tell in episode 86 in the series Last Stop, and that's about the Tokyo subway attack. I went over a lot of the details about the cult, about Om Shinriko, and about um, Asahara, the so-called guru, and there is quite a bit more to that to that story Um, there's so much to it that I gave you guys a lot, but I didn't want to overwhelm with, with too much, but I do, if you're interested in cults, if you're interested in that cult in particular, I would say definitely go out and, um, there's a couple of really great books that I mentioned on that episode. One of them being The Cult at the End of the World by David Kaplan and Andrew Marshall, And that is just really got so much detail in it, you guys. And it really reads like a story. It's not like a research paper, Um, but it's a crazy good book. And if you want to know more about that uh, cult, um, if you want to know more about what they did, I mean, so let me just give you an example. Besides the, the sarin gas, which was the chemical weapons, they also tried using biological weapons. So that was their first foray into mass murder. And for whatever reason, even though they had a lot of people who were trained scientists and those kinds of things that were part of the cult and they were helping them out with some of these plots, 
they really, I mean, thank goodness they did not, um, they weren't, they were not successful (laughs) a lot of the times. They really made a lot of mistakes. Um, And again, thankfully, they made a lot of mistakes. So sometimes they didn't work out the way they wanted them to. Um, But there was quite a few um, deaths. There was quite a few murders. There was quite a few murders of their own um, members that they committed just for various reasons, um, mostly for not being loyal or for them becoming, them believing that they might be some kind of threat to the group. Um, Like maybe they might tell somebody what was going on or they might try to leave and report them, that kind of thing. So, but this was just another really evil act that they did. And I wanted to tell you guys about it. As I said in the episode, there was quite a few teenagers, you know, older teens, some were 18, 19 years old, but like I said, in Japan, I'm not sure if it's still the same, but at Japan at the time that I, oh, wait a minute, I think I said that. I'm trying to remember. You guys, you, just so you know, is <laughs> once I finish this episode and I get on to the next one with all the reading and the research, I don't always remember what I said. So sometimes when you guys will send me something and say, oh, you talked about this, I'm like, I did. It goes really fast. You you tend to forget certain things because I just have so much information swirling around in my head of all these different cases. But um, I think it might have changed uh, that now the age of majority is um, 18, but at the time it was 20. So a lot of these people who were young, who were joining, were um, actually not legally considered um, adults yet. So what happened is when they joined this group. And then, of course, one of the things Asahara had them do was to um, was to basically isolate themselves and disconnect from their families, disconnect from anyone who wasn't in the group. So, of course, parents didn't take too kindly to that. And they started demanding that their children be returned. And they would go to the police they would, you know, first they would try to get a hold of their, their child in the, staying in the own facility. But, of course, they were not allowed to, you know, respond to their parents' letters or phone calls or whatever. Then they would try to go to the police. That didn't necessarily get them very far. Um, and I tried to figure out why that was. Because the police would tell the parents, this was something the parents reported, they would tell the parents that oh, well, that matters between the parent and the child. So we are not going to get involved in that. And you got to remember, these these were considered children, not adults, but they would do nothing about it. And the only thing that I could, people that, you know, the only thing that people have reported that they believe is that, again, like I mentioned in the episode, they just did not want to get involved. They just did not want to deal with this this group, you know, the Ohm group, because they were just kind of a pain in the butt. They would right away start screaming religious persecution, um, start suing people. It, it was just a very confrontational style that this group had that the Japanese authorities were not used to dealing with and didn't know how to respond. So they basically just left them to their own devices, why they were, and this is why they were able to get away with as much as they did stockpiling some of these weapons and everything else because they just weren't being monitored. So anyway, these parents were demanding that the children be released, be returned to them. 
And there was one attorney who did take on Ohm. And he was an attorney in Yokohama. He was a young man. He was only 33 years old. But he was also very, um, he was one of these advocates for, you know, civil rights and human rights and, and that kind of thing. He was different from some of the attorneys that were practicing in the city at that time. He kind of stood out. He was kind of a standout. He was somebody who made kind of waves. Um, but his name was Tsutsumi Sakamoto. And he decided that he was going to represent these parents. And so just to give you an idea of what kind of cases that he would take on that other people would not were police brutality cases, the rights of the disabled. He had also taken on another cult before. He had actually, same thing, you know, the children were there and the parents were trying to get them back. And this was the cult, if you, I don't know if you remember, this is way back, maybe, I think it's maybe like in the 80s, was the Moonies. So it was Reverend Moon, and he began, you know, he started this huge cult in Japan. So he took them on too. So in October of 1989, Sakamoto was already representing 23 different families of parents of OM members. And again, you know, they went to him because they couldn't get any help from anybody else. So there were so many of them that he actually, him and his um it wasn't him alone, but he had a law firm that they formed something called the Society of Ohm Supreme Truth Victims. So it might have been like some kind of, you know, class action suit or something like that that they were thinking of doing. But what happened was anybody who had a complaint about this could come to him. He would represent them. Um, and then he was going to try to negotiate after he had enough voices, enough people behind them to, to talk to Ohm and say, hey, we need to have a, have a sit down about this. So this is what was going to happen. Besides the, children, the parents of the children, he was also representing cult members who had left and they felt that they had been cheated out of their money. And we'll talk a little bit about that. I did talk about you know, some of the crazy things that he um, charged them money for you know, all of these different programs and potions and things like that. And, uh, I mean, thousands and thousands of dollars in some cases. So the two main things that he was, you know, basically threatening to go to court over with these with these plaintiffs um, against Asahara and Ohm was the treatment of minors, which he said was illegal, not allowing them to, parents to have, you know, connection with them, communication with them. And, you know, having them sign things and act as their own representative when they were still uh, legally minors. And the other thing was the claims that he made of these things he was selling, all of these magic potions. And he said that he could bestow magic powers on people and he was having them pay for these things. And he said that, of course, would constitute fraud. So he was going to file claims for that you know, for these people who had come and said, hey, this guy cheated me. So Sakamoto was married. His wife, Satoko, was 29 years old. She worked part-time as well at the law firm, but she was a mother. Um, they had a son. Uh, it was their very first child, and his name was Tatsuhiko. And at this time, he was 14 months old. And so she was, you know, most of, half of the time, she was you know, basically home taking care of her child um, and she would help at the law firm. So, and again, she was 29, he was 33. 
So one of the first things that happened was Sakamoto was interviewed on a radio program in Japan. And basically they were talking to him about these these lawsuits against, you know, the Ohm cult and Asahara. And he basically said, you know, what was happening, that they were doing things that weren't legal, that they were making claims and defrauding people. And this was something in the case that he was taking on. So as I explained in the episode, anytime anybody spoke anything against this cult, they would do like a full attack on on whoever it was to try to shut down talk, to shut down people, to turn it around and make these people look like they were being the bad guy. So what they did after this radio program aired is that they he had all the cult med- members go out and start spreading leaflets all over the city, accusing um, Sakamoto and his law firm of religious persecution. And that was one of their... <laughs> That was one of their main things. It was always, they were always crying religious persecution. For whatever reason, they knew that that made, and I did explain that a little bit in the in the episode about the history of, you know, the religions and what had happened with the emperor and after the war. And so you can, you know, listen to that again if you don't re- recall. But there was this whole history of it. So when somebody would say religious persecution, when they would cry that in Japan, people would get very... Um, very nervous about that. They wanted to, they were trying to be very politically correct in allowing people to have their religious freedom and all of this now. And, um, and Ohm took, they took uh, full advantage of that. So that same month in October, the Sakamoto and his law firm, you know, some of his legal team there were going to try and reach an agreement with Ohm to settle the complaints against them. And this was to happen on October 31st, 1989. So they're sitting at this, okay, you have to picture this. So they go into, just like you would picture from any show or if you've had this done, done yourself to go into a legal deposition. You go into this big conference room and you know everybody's in their suits and you got the lawyers and you got the, it's usually it's the lawyers and, and that kind of thing. Sometimes there's a witness or two, but it's usually the lawyers who are sitting there putting everything on record and trying to come up with some uh, settlement. So one of the things that Sakamoto brought up at the deposition was the idea of the process that they called the blood initiation. And I talked about that in the episode. That was where they would have to drink Asahara's blood because supposedly he had, it had special powers. And I mean, it was gross, but anyway, and that was a blood initiation. And they were charging thousands of dollars for that because Asahara, he would come out with these claims. He would actually have these claims that would, he would, you know, would be in magazine articles and in his marketing stuff and all of this stuff. And Ohm claimed that Asahara's DNA had been studied to prove that his blood was magical. And if you were to do this blood initiation, that, you know, you were going to have these magical powers and you were going to be able to do all these incredible things and whatever. So the attorney, very logically, asked for proof of this claim. And they said, well, you had DNA studied. Let me see this. Let us see the study. Let us see. We need to see the proof that his blood is special and it's been documented because it was studied by scientists at a certain da-da-da. 
And they said, well, okay, yeah, it was studied, but maybe we didn't exactly say it correctly. It was studied by our own scientists. So, so it's like, okay, well, then they can say whatever, right? It doesn't make much. They're like, okay, well, that's not good enough. Um, they said, okay, if you can't show us that an independent party has studied his blood and his DNA and can tell us that your claims are correct about his DNA is magical or whatever, then you need to give these people back their money because if you don't, that's considered fraud. So what do you think that they said when they came at them with that? You're persecuting our religion. You're <laughs> that's, that's what they came back with because that was their go-to move. So the second thing was the parents want to meet with the cult leader, Asahara, and whoever else makes these decisions about why we can't speak to our children. Okay, then you get, come in a room with us and you tell us why we can't see our children. And give us proof that they don't want to see us. They said, you know, if you don't do that, then we will start filing these lawsuits against you. And, of course, they refused. They refused to do that. They refused to allow them to have contact with their children. And, again, crying religious persecution. And that was about it. That was the end of the, the entire meeting. Um, afterwards, because they were, they got so hostile— you got to imagine you're sitting across these people and they're not, they just don't seem like they're in their right mind. Like there's something weird going on here. These people are so overzealous in their claims of, their, in their beliefs and things. And the fact that they would just get extremely angry about anything that was, would have been a pretty rational thing or logical thing for somebody to ask of them. So Sakamono he just felt very uneasy. And he told the parents at that time, be be careful because these people, <laughs> they're a little different and I don't know that they're not dangerous. He was very astute to have determined that just by what he saw and what he experienced. Because right after that, um, the OM members who were in the meeting went to Asahara and told him what happened. And at that time, Asahara ordered Sakamoto's death. He basically told him, that's it. You got to get rid of him. And of course, they knew what that meant. He said, you need to kill him. These cult members were very loyal. It was just a whole intimidation factor. There was all kinds of things going on that made these people just completely blindly follow whatever he said. I mean, almost immediately after that, six men who were own members snuck into the Sakamoto's home. One of those men was uh, Marai, who was the chief scientist that I talked about. He was actually also one of the attackers on the subway who brought the sarin in. Another one of the, of the six men was Dr. Nakagawa. He was actually also a physician. He was the one that brought with him seven syringes full of potassium chloride into the Sakamoto's home. So potassium chloride if you use it in large doses, what it does is it induces cardiac arrest. It'll actually give you a heart attack and, and you will die. So again, their planning is not very good. <laughs> Most of their planning doesn't work very well. Um, they just don't think things through or they're just maybe just too impulsive or maybe they're just nuts, but whatever. The first plan was that they were going to catch Sakamoto at work. 
that they were going to wait until, you know, he was getting ready to leave his office and they were going to ambush him somehow and they were going to kill him with this potassium chloride. But the day that they were planning to do it, for whatever reason they picked this day, turned out to be a holiday. It was a it was actually a some kind of legal holiday. So he wasn't at work. So instead of them saying, okay, well, we need to change the day, no, because Asahara wanted him dead that day. Asahara said, well, we're going to have to go, you're going to have to go to his house. There's just no other option, which is crazy in of itself. Because, of course, at his house, he lives with his family. So what does that mean? That means get rid of all of them. So these six men snuck into his house in, at night. Both Sakamoto and his wife were asleep in their room. The baby was asleep in his crib. As they come in through the house, I'm not even sure how they got in, the baby started to cry. So one of the members ran to the crib and stuck his hand over the baby's mouth to stop him from crying and also to basically smother him. At the same time, shot him with the syringe. And of course, you would imagine that the baby died pretty quickly. Then they went to Sakamoto's room So his wife was struck in the head, so she was bludgeoned, and she was also strangled. Sakamoto wakes up, and of course, he starts to fight. He's trying to fight them off. At the same time, they're trying to inject him with this syringe, and so they keep hitting him repeatedly with the hammer that they brought, and that's what they had struck his wife in the head with as well. Then they injected the potassium chloride in him with the syringe, but he still didn't die. He was still alive. So they strangled him as well. Then they wrapped up the bodies. They had some, you know, the bed clothing they took. There was some futons, which in America, we think of futons as something different. Futons is basically in, in Japan, from what I understand, it's just like a, a, a kind of a thin mat. Um, not like what we think of. We kind of think of a futon as a whole big thing, like a couch thing, but it's a little different. But anyway, so they get these futons, they roll up. The, the bodies in the futons. They put them into two cars. And then they commence to drive for three days because they have to take these bodies somewhere and hide them. It sounds like they just drove around for like three days trying to find a remote spot. Um, why it took three days, I'm not sure. But they basically took each one of the bodies to a different place. The baby was the first one that they dumped the body in a wetlands area, so in the water. Then they buried Sakamoto himself in a forest. And then they took Satoko to a whole nother prefecture, which is like another area. Um, Might be kind of like a county, I guess. Um, And they buried her in another area, in a field somewhere, just far away. Then they burned the clothes and the bedding. They wanted to make sure that these bodies, if they are... Well, first of all, they wanted to make sure these bodies were never found. But if they were found, they didn't want them to be identified. So they took all their clothes off to make sure there was no identifying clothing. They burned that. They burned the bedding. But they also used the hammer to smash all their teeth so that they couldn't be identified by dental records. I mean, this is how evil this whole plot was. So not only did they want them dead, but they just wanted their family to never ever know, you know, what had happened to them or what, you know, if they were dead or alive or if they found the body, they could never identify them. That was their, their hope. So they burned the clothes in the bedding and then they took the shovels and they tossed those into the sea. 
That was in 1989. They went back to Ohm, and Asahara told them that they had done a holy work by getting rid of these enemies of, of Ohm. And then, after he praised them, he sat them down and he read them the penalties for murder under the Japanese penal code, which was death, death by hanging. So that was a not-so-veiled threat to say, if you ever speak of this, you will be... I mean, first of all, I don't think they would speak of it because he would kill them or have them killed. Secondly, you know, if they got caught because they talked, then they would be executed. So, and that closed the chapter on that incident, at least for Asahara. But here's the thing, like I said, their planning is never that great. So these people went missing um, when he didn't go to work. Of course, people started coming saying, well, you know, he missed work and the wife doesn't show up and all of these things. So they go to the house and it's, and they clean that house. There was nothing, there was no blood. They didn't look like a sign of a struggle. They completely cleaned the house. But, but right near on the floor near a closet where those futons are usually kept, which the family realized that those futons were gone because they knew it was in their house. And they're like, okay, those are gone. That's weird. Um, they found a badge with the logo that's the Ohm Supreme Truth logo. And it turned out that that was Dr. Nakagawa's badge. It didn't have his name on it, but later on it was determined that it was his, that he had dropped it probably when he went to go get the futons. Who knows, maybe it was in his pocket and he bent over and it fell out. I don't know, just kind of, if you think you're going to go back and clean, you might see that, but apparently they didn't think to go look in the closet where they had taken stuff from because that wasn't where the struggle was apparently. Um, and that was left there. So they went to the police and said, oh my gosh, we know the Sakamono is the attorney who's been filing the lawsuits against Ohm and now we've, they're missing and here's an Ohm badge in their house, which should not be there. And the police basically were not interested in investigating. They said, well... They, the whole family's gone. They just must have fled for personal reasons, or maybe it was a family suicide, which apparently is a thing, not, not a common thing, but a thing that happens sometimes in Japanese culture. I don't know if it's something that happens in modern days, but it's something that they pointed to as a possibility. It might have been a family suicide. Or they just, you know, decided to disappear, which makes no sense. It's super crazy. But they didn't investigate it. The other reason they think that they probably didn't try very hard to look for Sakamoto was the fact that Sakamoto had handled cases against the police for police brutality. He was not a, let's put it this way, um, he was not a friend of the police and the police did not care for him very much. So that could be another reason. So fast forward, so this was 1989. So fast forward to 1995 after the Tokyo um, subway attack, after the arrests of the own members, after the capture of Asahara, they start interrogating the own leaders who are now have been jailed and are awaiting trial. And the own leaders, of course, all knew what had happened to the Sakamoto's, and they decided to spill the beans, and they told them what had happened. 
They told them where to find the bodies. They went to all, it took a while, but they did find all three bodies, which, well, what was left of the bodies was mainly skeletons. In the wetlands was the hardest search because in the baby's body had been put into the water and they had to search for five days. And the only thing they found was little uh, Tatsuhiko's palm, the palm of his hand. They were able to identify him that way. That was a horrible, horrible, evil act that they committed. Anybody that did anything that wasn't 100% on board with Asahara was their enemy. And so he decided to wipe out a whole family, which is just crazy. One of the men who participated in the murder had only been an OM member for two months. It just boggles the mind that somebody can go from supposedly being a rational human being, a citizen, can become so turned around in his mind because of this cult-like group that they're part of, that they so blindly follow this leader who, one of the first things he says is, we need you to murder a family. Okay. I mean, just mind-boggling. The Sakamoto's, when their bodies were found, they had a, a service for them. First of all, they had to have it in the stadium because there was 25,000 people who came to pay their respects to the Sakamoto's. It was really, really a very sad story. And that was just one of the things that they did. So like I said, there was so many more stories in that book and things that I found online, things about his family, about Asahara's family. I talked a little bit about the daughter who was like a teenager and she was all in as far as, you know, being like her dad. Um, he had another daughter who denounced him. She was a, a bit younger than the, the one who was his favorite. Um, she denounced him and all the murders and the subway attack and all those things. So not the whole family. They weren't all with him. Somebody asked me the question, what about his wife? Yeah, she's still married to him. She's still married to him. She's still loyal to him. She still proclaims his innocence. Anyway, so I just wanted to give you this little bonus episode. And again, as you can tell, this is different from what I normally do. It's not scripted. I just kind of go through the story and, um, you know, very ad lib in a way. I mean, I have my notes. So, you know, of course I have to have my, <laughs> my facts. I have my notes, but I just talk this like, like I would normally be talking to, you know, a friend or somebody like that. Um, it's not scripted like the, the, the regular episodes are. This is what I do on Patreon. So I wanted to give you this as a freebie um, so you can see what that's like. And just to know, so if you join Patreon, which is Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash once upon a crime. And as far as little as $2 a month, um, it actually, you sign up and automatically every beginning of the month, they take out two bucks and you get all the bonus content. You get um, merchandise. The first thing we do is we send you a gift pack of merchandise, stickers, bookmarks. If you're at the $5 level, a tote bag. If you're at the $10 level, you get a rocks glass, plus all the other stuff, all the stickers and all that stuff. So I'm also getting ready to do another special thing for people who have been um, patrons for a while. Um, we're going to call them, a, 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 we're going to give them a little legacy gift, which means, you know, they've, they've been with us for a while and they, we really appreciate their support for the show. And uh, that will be a special limited edition item. 
but we'll be announcing that uh, fairly soon here. But this is what the Patreon thing is like. And like I said, again, also, if you join all of the bonus stuff that's there, you get access to that as soon as you join. So there's some of the follow-up episodes. There's some of the wrap-up episodes. There's, you know, things like that where I've put it out for Patreon only. Once you become a member, you get all that. So it's not like from here forward, you get that. At some point, I may cut it off because, you know, some people have been paying for a while and getting that. And now you pay once and you get all the back catalog as well. But I'm going to keep it that way at least for a little bit longer. I may end up taking off some of the older episodes, the first ones, and then we'll do something else with those later. You know, there may be a pay pay gate or something like that um, where you pay like a buck or two and you can get those. But, um, But for right now, it's all available. So... Check it out. It's patreon.com. Thanks so much. You'll have this bonus episode while I'm off. And I'm back next week with a whole new series. And this is this is another thing that I do on Patreon is sometimes I let you in on what the next series is. Can't do it on this one because this is going out to everybody on the regular feed. But that's something that sometimes I will do is throw out and let you guys know what the next series is. So I appreciate you guys. Um everything, all your support, whether you're a patron or not, just because you're listening, you tell friends, you give ratings and reviews, you send me emails, you interact with me on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, and all of that is so cool and I appreciate it so much. So until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.